Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Biden administration has been cracking down on threats to competition in key industries. It's in line with the president's executive order from July of last year directing federal government agencies to enforce the antitrust laws. I expect the federal agencies, and they know this, (laughs) to help restore competition so that we have lower prices, higher wages, more money, more options. But it hasn't been going so well in court for federal antitrust regulators. The Justice Department lost its bids to block United Health from acquiring Change Healthcare and to stop a merger between two major U.S. sugar refiners. Now the Justice Department is taking on the airline industry in court, suing to break up the partnership between American Airlines and JetBlue Airways. It, too, may be an uphill battle. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Jennifer Ree. This is not a merger, so why is the Justice Department trying to stop it? Well, it's not a merger, that's true, and that's actually one of the points of the, the defense here, that the Justice Department is looking at this as though it's a merger when it isn't. But the Department of Justice has the right to look at any kind of a joint venture or alliance that could harm competition. It's not restricted to just looking at a full merger between two companies as a vehicle, you know, that it can study to understand whether it could cause harm. This is called an alliance. It's essentially a joint venture. And the Department of Justice also has the right under the law to look at joint ventures. Let's talk about the government's case. They're emphasizing JetBlue's role as a disruptor right. and saying this partnership allows the biggest U.S. airline, which is American, to take over its most disruptive rival, JetBlue. Tell us more about you know, the government, why they're doing this. Right. Well, the way they view this, now it's limited to the Northeast because the alliance only covers the Northeast, really just Boston-Logan Airport and the airports in the New York City area. And what they're saying is that the alliance itself is put together in a way that it's essentially in that region a merger, that the two companies that once competed with each other for these routes in and out of Boston and New York have aligned their incentives so they really aren't competing anymore. And in that respect, You take a market which had four major U.S. domestic airlines and you reduce it down to three. And in in its most important um, in any deal that the Department of Justice of FTC is looking at is when what they consider a maverick firm is acquired by like an incumbent or a legacy 
kind of company, they look at a maverick as an entity that's disruptive to competition and shakes up competition and is pro-competitive, drives others to innovate more, drives prices down, comes in and kind of does their own thing and shakes things up. And they view JetBlue as that kind of an airline. They even talk about a JetBlue effect. And that means they've noticed that when JetBlue enters into a certain route, you know, a route between two cities, that the prices for that route tend to come down across the board. So that's a good thing. And what they believe here is that this old legacy airline, American, which isn't a maverick and and isn't really disruptive in that way, by combining with JetBlue in this Northeast alliance and aligning their incentives, they basically diminish or neutralize that maverick JetBlue effect that JetBlue had, at least for those routes. And that's really what they talk about when when they focus on the fact that JetBlue's been disruptive. And so in particular, it's problematic to have American combining with JetBlue. JetBlue and American say that this allows them to go up against the largest players in the Northeast Corridor, United and Delta. And they say that it has produced hundreds of millions of dollars in consumer benefits. It's a game-changing solution. What's their argument in more depth, and do they have any proof about those benefits? It's such an interesting situation. It'll be hard for the judge, I think, to work this out. This Northeast Alliance has already been in operation now since uh, February of 2021. And what they're saying in terms of those benefits is that, hey, since that time, we've increased output. We've added all sorts of flights for consumers. We've made it much easier for consumers, let's say, that live um, in an area where they can't fly, let's say, directly to London, to more easily book a flight through American and JetBlue. They can take JetBlue, let's say, from their city to New York, and then they can take American from New York to London, and they can book it all together, and they can share all the points or use either airline's points, and that's a huge benefit for consumers. And perfectly honestly, June, it is so far a benefit for consumers. So far, what has been shown is that some output has been increased and that it's been able to provide more choices in particular for business customers that may not have been able to use JetBlue for any part of their trip in the past. But the funny thing about that, and I think the difficult or skeptical thing about that, is that ever since this alliance started, it's been under scrutiny. The Department of Justice has been skeptical in looking at it since it started. So, of course, since February of 2021, they were going to be very careful about what they do and not raising fares and not you know, cutting routes or do anything that the Department of Justice believes might ultimately happen. So even though we have seen there is a great argument that there's been this pro-competitive benefit from it, it's shaded by the fact that it's been under scrutiny ever since it started. The question is, what really happens when it's not under the microscope? And the Justice Department is claiming it will cost consumers hundreds of millions in higher fares every year. Where are they getting those numbers from? Right. Now, the way they look at it is that the alliance allows these companies to share revenue. Now, they don't share pricing. They still are independent. They make their own pricing decisions. But what the Department of Justice says is, yes, but they share revenue. So it doesn't really matter to them anymore whether the passenger books JetBlue or whether the passenger books American. It removes the competition to get that passenger on their flight because they're going to share the revenue. So whoever gets it, 
they both benefit. And because of that, there's no incentive to compete. There's no incentive to lower fares, get into a fare war. And in fact, down the road, there is an incentive for both of them to increase fares because they both benefit if they increase fares. And so this is what the government says they believe will happen in the future. And the most interesting thing about that is that there's also a dispute about whether that's even an appropriate thing to prove. When you look at a merger, when the government looks at a merger, what they're trying to do is speculate what will happen in the future when the two companies are merged. And they have to show that there's a a potential of substantial harm in the market from the merger. And that's what the government's trying to do here. But the defendants, the airlines say, no, no, no. First of all, it's not a merger. And second of all, we've already been active since February of 2021. So what you actually have to show is that there's harm to the market now that it's not sufficient to say, hey, there might be harm to the market in the future. You have to show there's harm to the market now, and you know what? You can't do that because what we've done is we've increased output. We've increased routes by these airlines. Didn't American and JetBlue have an agreement with the Transportation Department during the Trump administration for this alliance? Yes, they did. Um, And the agreement was basically for them to divest a few slots. So in other words, that the entirety of the Northeast Alliance, as the parties originally envisioned, it didn't go forward because the DOT basically said no to the full alliance. And so they had to divest some, you know, landing and takeoff slots at a couple airports, I believe, in New York, at LaGuardia and in um, Washington, D.C., in order to move forward with it, and they've also had to be monitored by the Department of Transportation. So this is, of course, another part of the airline's defense. Look, we're going to be monitored by the Department of Transportation. They know airlines, they understand competition, and they cleared this deal. But both DOT and Department of Justice, when the deal was cleared, was still run by representatives from the Trump administration. And now what we have is the DOJ that has Biden's enforcers in place, and they're the ones that decided to go after this deal. Did anything stand out to you in the opening statements? You know, I think what stands out to me in the opening statements is just how they're really in completely and totally opposite ends. I mean, to hear the Department of Justice attorney, this is absolutely the worst possible thing that could happen. It's going to cost millions of dollars. It's a consolidation. It's essentially a merger of two airlines in an industry where we have terrible trouble now. Too much consolidation already far too concentrated, passengers that are treated horribly, fares that are going up, and this is only going to contribute to that. And then to hear the other side, it's wildly pro-competitive. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to be able to compete much better against Delta and United. It's going to cause everybody to compete. And then the Department of Justice attorney has to ask, American is the biggest airline in the United States, possibly in the world. So why does it need JetBlue in order to compete against Delta and United? And I think, you know, there's a really good point there. But they're they're just really wildly at opposite ends of what the impact of this alliance is. And I think that, you know, the proof is going to be in the evidence. I'm really interested to hear what the testimony is going to be, what the experts are going to say here, and what the documents show. Because the other thing, June, that was interesting is they both talked about blurbs and excerpts from documents that they had that were also completely diametrically opposite. (laughs) You you know, you had the Department of Justice attorney talking about Delta documents that says, we don't care about this, we don't even think about it, this doesn't bother us. And then you have the plaintiff saying, oh, no, no, there are all sorts of analyses coming out from Delta about how this is going to be really difficult for us and this is going to increase competition in the Boston and New York markets and, you know, this isn't great for us. 
So it'll be really interesting to see what do these documents actually say, which is going to come out in the next three weeks of trial. American and JetBlue have a year and a half of records to show what's happened so far, right. even though they knew that they were under the microscope. But the Justice Department is just going to have theory. That's right. That's right. And that's absolutely the difficulty of it. Now, in every merger case, all they really have is theory. Here, to some extent, they have a presumption of potential anti-competitive effects, because if you just purely look at market shares, and in airline deals, market shares are looked at, you know, the way they look at them are the different numbers of airlines and their share in city to city. So you look at a route, let's say it's New York to Miami, Florida. You look at that route, you look at the competition in the route, and that's how you basically look at market shares. So there's this big table and long list of market shares. And under the merger guidelines that the Department of Justice uses, you can do some basic math. It's called the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index that basically sums the square of the shares and looks at those numbers before and after a merger. And if they go above certain thresholds, if the post-merger HHI is over 2,500 and the change is over 100, the guidelines tell you that that's a presumptively harmful deal. And the judges use those guidelines and they follow those guidelines. So the DOJ has, I would say, just a tinge more than just theory going in because they do have some market shares that show that these are concentrated markets. That, of course, will rely on or depend on whether the judge actually views this as a merger or not, because the judge doesn't view this as a merger and doesn't think the analysis should be done the way you would do an analysis for a merger. The HHIs might not be as important. So JetBlue is in the process of trying to acquire a discount carrier, Spirit Airlines, mm-hmm. for $3.8 billion. That would create the country's fifth largest airline. How does that fit in with this? So it doesn't really. I mean, it's very much a separate thing, and the judge has to take the market as it is today. And today the companies aren't merged, and we don't know whether that deal will, will get consummated or not. The defendants have used it to say, look, it shows that JetBlue is still very independent. JetBlue went forward with that deal. It had nothing to do with American. It didn't talk to American. It didn't need Americans' approval to do it. And it shows this is not a merger. These are still independent airlines. And and that's the way they used that deal. Uh, Other than that, I don't actually think that that deal will be discussed or come into this trial very much. You know, as we've discussed before, the Justice Department is taking this hard stance against threats to competition in key industries. And so far, I mean, recently, they haven't had a particularly good record. No, you know, it hasn't been good. And it's a funny thing, June, I think a year or two ago when a lot of the speeches started and I kept thinking to myself, you know, if in fact the DOJ and FTC sue to try to block these mergers rather than settle them with remedies like they say they plan to, they're going to have loss after loss after loss because sometimes the remedies are sufficient. And I think a judge is going to look at those remedies today in a very different way than the Department of Justice is looking at those remedies. And that, in fact, is exactly what happened in the recent loss by the DOJ in challenging United Health's acquisition of Change Healthcare. You know, the companies did have some competitive problems. But they went into merger with a divestiture, which I thought was a pretty good divestiture to sell off part of the businesses that competed, and also to firewall off a piece of the business to prevent United from getting certain data and competitively sensitive information on its rivals. And the DOJ did what it said it was going to do. It said, it's a problematic merger. We're not going to accept the remedy. We're going to sue. They did that. And the judge said, 
but there's this remedy. And obviously the judge decided the remedy would be sufficient to fix whatever problems there were, and that's part of the reason that that deal went through. And I think that this is part of the problem the DOJ has in the FTC with kind of drawing that sort of line in the sand and saying, hey, if a deal's problematic, we're not going to settle anymore, we're going to sue, because those settlements can be fine. And I think the other thing, June, that's happening is that it's the other thing I think that will lead to more losses in court, is that there's a lot of remorse right now by the FTC and DOJ for what happened in the past. There's on the DOJ side, I think there's remorse for so much consolidation that happened over the last 25 years in the airline industry to leave us with what we have today, essentially just four big, you know, national domestic carriers. And then you have the FTC that really regrets many of the tech and platform deals that they reviewed and allowed to close, such as Facebook, Instagram, and Facebook, WhatsApp, Google DoubleClick, deals like that. And now they're kind of trying to play catch up. So here you see the DOJ going after this deal. And I have no doubt it's probably going to go after the Spirit JetBlue merger as well down the road. And you have the FTC making similar moves, trying to block Facebook from buying a company called Within, which makes virtual reality apps. And I think it all comes out of that remorse for what happened in the past and trying to make up for it. And I don't know that that's going to be successful. So you think this is an uphill battle for justice? You know, I do. You know, I'd I'd like to sort of reserve my judgment on this until I've seen the evidence, because as I said in the opening statements, the picture that was depicted of the evidence that's going to come out in trial was quite different by either side. And I want to see what that testimony really is and what those documents really look like, I think, before I come out on this, because I think this one's very close. But um, generally, I do say the DOJ, even though maybe they can win this if the evidence on their side, they have an uphill battle, yes. So... How much then is this a test for, you know, Biden's Justice Department to prove that its hardline stance is working or effective? I think the jury's a little bit still out on that because I think that they just have to bring the right challenges, the right deals. If they bring the challenges to the right deals, I think they'll win. Um, So, for instance, we're waiting on a verdict in the DOJ's challenge of the merger of Penguin Random House with Simon & Schuster. I actually read the transcripts from that trial. I didn't listen to it, and I think the DOJ did a great job, and I think they have a good shot of winning that one. So that'll be one win, you know, one checkmark on the side of a win for the DOJ. I also think that what isn't in the press is that the FTC has managed to get a lot of abandonment, and that's a success. It means they decide they're going to challenge a deal, and rather than litigating, the companies walk away. They've had quite a few in the last year and a half, and those are successes, too. So I kind of feel like it's sort of even, and we need to see what the next two years brings. Thanks, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Jennifer Ree. These were folks who got the transport that Biden totally abandoned. They were homeless. They were hungry. So they hit the jackpot to be able to be in the wealthiest sanctuary jurisdiction in the world. But those Venezuelan migrants don't agree with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They say they were duped with false promises and used as political pawns when DeSantis put them on flights from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. And they're suing him for the violation of their constitutional and civil rights. And there is also a criminal investigation by the sheriff of San Antonio, Texas. What infuriates me the most about this case 
is that here we have 48 people that are already on, on hard times, uh, right? They are here legally in our country at that point. They have every right to be where they are. And I believe that they were preyed upon. Somebody came from out of state, preyed upon these people, um, lured them with promises of, of a better life, which is what they were absolutely looking for. My guest is Alora Mokerjee, director of Columbia Law School's Immigrants' Rights Clinic. Tell us about this lawsuit. So this lawsuit was filed on Tuesday, just days after Governor DeSantis of Florida transported about 50 asylum seekers and migrants, almost all from Venezuela, and left them stranded on Martha's Vineyard without so much as a phone call to let island residents know that people with needs were coming. So the plaintiffs include three individuals who were lured without proper consent from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. And the plaintiffs allege that Governor DeSantis and other Florida officials violated the Constitution, federal laws, and state laws by inappropriately luring migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard without their knowledge or consent. Will you explain how they were lured and what they were promised? So according to both reports that we've all heard, as well as the lawsuit itself, it appears that there were a number of individuals who were using false names, who spoke Spanish, who approached asylum seekers and other migrants at shelters in Texas in the San Antonio area and promised the asylum seekers a range of things if they got onto these planes, including housing, employment, immigration support services. Basically, if individuals got on the planes, they would have a better life. The unknown individuals promised that the asylum seekers would be taken to a sanctuary jurisdiction. The names that were specifically mentioned were Washington, D.C. or Boston. And the plaintiffs in this case did not know that they were being transported to Martha's Vineyard. Let's talk about Florida's response. A spokeswoman for DeSantis said that the complaint was political theater and the transportation of the immigrants to Martha's Vineyard was done on a voluntary basis. The immigrants were homeless, hungry, and abandoned. It's particularly ironic that a Florida spokesperson is calling this lawsuit political theater, since that is exactly what Governor DeSantis has engaged in by dropping asylum seekers and others who are very vulnerable to Martha's Vineyard without providing them with any care or attention. You know, the Florida officials here have engaged in a cruel political ploy one that is designed to gain as much media attention as possible as DeSantis is building a campaign to be our next president. His political stunt is advancing an anti-immigrant agenda and trying to instill fear and hatred toward immigrants nationwide. It is cruel and un-American. Talking about their damages, apparently when they got to Martha's Vineyard, they were welcomed and sheltered and helped. So... Some might say, well, they were better off being welcomed in Martha's Vineyard than being stuck in San Antonio, Texas. You know, I hear you on the warm welcome that individuals at Martha's Vineyard provided to these asylum seekers. And I'm grateful for everything everyone did to help these asylum seekers feel like dignified 
human beings who were welcome in our country. Now, that said, the individual plaintiffs in this lawsuit, and um, now I can quote from the complaint, they felt helpless, defrauded, desperate. They were crying. They felt anxious and confused. They suffered from lack of sleep and vertigo. These are very vulnerable individuals who are seeking asylum, who've suffered untold harm in their home countries already, and then to be tricked and brought to a destination that they didn't expect by a person who they trusted, who turned out to be a fraud, that can really undermine a person's sense of stability and trust. It seems like DeSantis's stunt got a lot of attention, but Governor Greg Abbott has been sending busloads of migrants to New York and D.C. and Chicago and overloading their systems for quite some time. Has anyone sued him? As far as I know, no, not yet. Do you think that what they're doing is illegal in any sense? Not this case, but I mean just the busing and taking migrants from one place and putting them in sanctuary cities or states. Right. This is a real open legal question. The leading Supreme Court case on this is about 10 years old. It's Arizona versus United States from June of 2012. In that case, through a law called Senate Bill 1070, Arizona was trying to criminalize undocumented immigration status in Arizona through state criminal penalties and charges. In a 5-3 decision, the Supreme Court held that was impermissible. The Supreme Court held that Arizona's actions in that case violated the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which granted Congress and not the state plenary powers to regulate immigration enforcement. Now, what we're seeing today with busloads of migrants and immigrants and asylum seekers being brought from border states to other parts of the countries isn't exactly what Arizona was doing 10 years ago, but it is an analogous situation. And there are real questions about whether or not the border states' actions here violate the Constitution. I'm curious about one thing. If it's proven that they that these migrants were the victims of a fraud, would they be eligible for a special visa? Uh, I think it's a U visa. U visas are available to immigrants to the United States who have suffered a crime while on U.S. soil if the immigrant can prove that they have suffered substantial physical or mental harm. This type of visa is extremely difficult to get because a person can't just apply for it and get it. In the first instance, a migrant, an immigrant, would need what's called a law enforcement certification. So a law enforcement official would need to sign off on a form saying that each individual immigrant, migrant, asylum seeker who has been the victim of the crime in the United States provided substantial assistance in the investigation or prosecution of that crime. So it is a long process from here to point B, which is trying to get a law enforcement certification, to point C, which is actually getting a U visa. That process can easily take more than 10 years. And I want to ask you a general question. 
So the immigrants from Venezuela, I assume, are seeking asylum here. How long is that process and how likely is the ending for them? The process for seeking asylum can take a very long time. It is a symptom of our broken immigration system. So depending on which jurisdiction you're looking at in the country, it can take as long as an average of seven years for a person's case to be heard by an immigration judge, for the asylum seeker to have a day in court and explain to a judge why they fear returning to their home country. There were rumors that DeSantis was going to send migrants to Delaware, President Joe Biden's home state. Biden's response was something to the effect of, you can come visit, we have a beautiful shoreline. Immigration is under the executive branch. Should the federal government be stepping in here? What we're seeing is a broken immigration system. What we need is comprehensive immigration reform that would allow for the orderly, systematic processing of asylum seekers and other immigrants and migrants into the United States on a case-by-case basis in a way that is humane and dignified. And there should be a more robust, coordinated federal response to what we're seeing. Thanks so much for being on the show, Alora. That's Alora Mokerjee. She's the director of Columbia Law School's Immigrant Rights Clinic. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses, like yours, effectively manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Johnson & Johnson faced tough questions from federal appellate judges about whether it was legitimate to place a unit in bankruptcy to deal with the more than 40,000 cancer lawsuits over its baby powder. The Third Circuit will decide whether the bankruptcy case was filed in good faith or should be thrown out because J&J and its units don't face immediate financial distress. Joining me is bankruptcy law expert Jonathan Pasternak of Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron. Explain J&J's legal maneuver here, which is known as the Texas Two-Step. This scheme that was created goes something like this. A company, a manufacturer, a pharmaceutical, creates a product that results in a product liability claim. Thousands of claims come in from private individuals and then eventually governmental agencies and, and the like, very much what happened with Purdue Pharma. What happened in Purdue Pharma with the, you know, with the onslaught of litigation and lawsuits, which were all directed at the actual operating entity, forced Purdue to go into a, a direct Chapter 11 and, you know, risk everything. Um, as we know, Chapter 11 is an uncertain process. It can end up in a in a forced liquidation or, you know, a forced shutdown or what have you. And meanwhile, you know, you still have to negotiate with your creditors. And of course, the process becomes extremely expensive, you know, the more sophisticated and uh, detailed your your operations are. So somebody came up with the brilliant idea of said, hey, let's create a bankruptcy remote entity. We call them commonly SPEs. You know, they're often created as part of financial transactions so that, you know, lenders and investors can more easily isolate uh, an asset and a bankruptcy down the road. So that's kind of what they did here. So J&J created a new entity, call it Entity 2, and they came up with an idea where the new company would assume all of the liabilities of the old company. You can't assign liabilities. Okay, As we all know, you can transfer, you can assign assets to a, another entity, but you can't really assign a liability. You re- the liability remains with the company, by the way. So J&J is still on the hook with all these lawsuits, all these claims related to the talc. But what they did is they said, hey, let's create a separate entity who will also assume the liability and therefore claim the liabilities as, as their own or jointly and severally with J&J. But we won't put any assets in that entity. It's really like a depository, a liability depository. So we can have all of the claims. We can argue, oh, yeah, well, this company's on the hook for the claims, too. And guess what? We're going to file that assetless entity into bankruptcy so that they can take advantage of the automatic stay. Because the only way J&J could stop all the lawsuits otherwise is if J&J went into bankruptcy itself, which obviously it's looking to avoid. And where's the Texas part of this two-step? So it creates this 
bankruptcy remote, throws it down into Texas, which you know, has a history of, let's just say, more debtor-friendly venue. It, it, at least it's perceived that way. You know, it's kind of a successor to Delaware and that you might have heard over the years with many, you know, public companies and mega corporations. When they file, they file in Delaware because it's perceived anyway as a debtor-friendly venue or forum. So they essentially forum shop by setting up this corporation in Texas and then file in whatever the Southern District of Texas. And technically, it creates or arguably creates an automatic stay of all the lawsuits. Now, that automatically raises a lot of contention because does it really create an automatic stay if that new entity is not named in any of these lawsuits? Just by virtue of them assuming the liability does that mean that they have the right to stay all of those lawsuits? So, I mean, we know why they, they tried to do it so that they could try and argue that all the lawsuits are stayed and then said, hey, you know, come down to bankruptcy court, we'll get a mediation going, and we'll get a big class settlement, you know, along the lines of John Spanville and, and other famous product liability bankruptcies that have occurred over the years. That's what the Texas two-step is. What was the question before the appeals court? Well, again, you know, the whole premise of this bankruptcy was challenged from the get-go as a bad faith filing, they would call it, so that, you know, the company has no ability to reorganize, doesn't have any assets, it just has liabilities. There's a variety of reasons creditors move to dismiss bankruptcies. And they fall under this purview of what they call the bad faith filing rule. So it could be where you're trying to avoid a particular venue. We call that a forum shop, you know, to bring it down to Texas. This happened in the Enron case where the case was actually steered away from Houston to New York because there were a lot of employee anger. And you have those types of arguments here. I can assure you that there were motions made out of the box to dismiss the bankruptcy, you know, as a sham bankruptcy. And one of the judges during the appellate hearing says the timing really suggests you did this for litigation advantage. The right. lawyer for uh, the J&J unit, Neil Katyal, yep. said there's an advantage to bankruptcy. It's incidental. It isn't the reason. So, <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> Again, this gets back to the standards that courts must apply to whether to grant drastic relief, like, you know, dismissing a bankruptcy, you know, and uh, throwing the debtor out of bankruptcy court. And you have to be able to prove by, well, it's only a preponderance of the evidence on this standard, that there was a bad faith purpose, and it could be a litigation tactic is considered a bad faith purpose. You know, a lot of the cases revolve around whether there's just one big creditor and, and one debtor, and they call that the single-party dispute, you certainly don't have that here. So that weighs in favor of the debtor's case being sustained in bankruptcy. But the big bugaboo here is, you know, did you just machinate the whole process to invoke an automatic stay or to wrestle jurisdiction away from the, the other courts around the country? into Texas bankruptcy court. So one thing that Katyal 
argued that seemed to make sense to me is is about the lottery style home runs of verdicts here. I mean, there was a four point seven billion dollar award in 2018 to about 20 women who blamed their cancer on J&J's talc. And J&J ended up paying out $2.5 billion. So J&J is saying that by putting it all here in this unit, it ensures right. that there will be some fair payouts. Right, uniformity of, of settlement. Again, this is the Johns Manville playbook, where you know you have asbestos claims all over the country. Before bankruptcy, you have... You know, you have a variety of different settlements that are not uniform. And the argument that uh, the debtor makes to the court is a good one that, you know, this will ensure uh, uniformity of justice, so to speak. So everybody can participate and a fund will be created. I mean, it is a classic mass towards bankruptcy. Just the, you know, what they've done is this Texas two-step, and, and that, I think, has made things more difficult uh, for getting this mass tort settlement uh, implemented. The bankruptcy judge ruled that this was legitimate and a better yep. solution than continuing to have the jury's way claims across right. the Peace nation. Across the country, right. Where you have these, you know, lottery-style verdicts. Inconsistency of verdicts. I mean, that's a... Another factor the courts can weigh, you know, will this ensure, you know, uniformity of justice? But that, of course, is weighed against individual defendants having rights to bring, you know, actions uh, where where they, you know, where they live or where the, it's more uh, an appropriate venue than forcing them down. You know, some lady up in Washington State now, you know, has her case being mediated or... Uh, you know, litigated down in, in Texas. So uh, it's it's a push and a pull here. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the circuit court comes down and really could, you know, either make this a model for future mass tort claims resolution or it could, you know, it could push back on, on this kind of Texas two-step, and, you know, which is obviously designed to protect, you know, the parent company from utter chaos and destruction. This isn't the first company who's done this Texas two-step. No, certainly not. I take it since this is the first to reach an appeals court, they've been allowed to go through before. Yeah, again, there are any number of cases that, you know, the Southern District of Texas got very hot a couple of years ago and. We had during one of the many gas and oil uh, collapses uh, and became a very favorable pew um, away from just Delaware. And, you know, so corporations uh, have taken advantage of filing in Texas for many years. But again, that's it's really a venue shopping uh, issue on that point, whether it's Texas or Delaware. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is we're all waiting to see what happens. Again, bankruptcy is uh, it's an evolving uh, area of the law. It, 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 it involves a lot of creativity and flexibility. And, you know, and sometimes it really works. So, you know, there's been a whole I mean, if you've been following the Purdue case up here in White Plains, you know, they thought they had come up with a global resolution 
and then um, and Judge Drain approved it, and it included personal releases of the Sackler family, and it just did not sit well with any number of you know state constituents, and 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 sure enough, uh, it was overturned on appeal, hit the settlement, and they all had to go back to the drawing board. But we have seen historically that you know bankruptcy is not necessarily a bad tool for for solving these mass tort litigations and, you know, permitting, you know, some of the biggest companies in America to continue or not. So um, it'll be interesting to see if this case survives or not uh, and what that the impact could be, you know, really devastating or material on the future of Johnson & Johnson. Thanks for being on the show, John. That's bankruptcy attorney Jonathan Pasternak of Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.